Shapeshifters on The Money Show. This has been a long time coming, but finally we've managed to corner Dr. Imtia Suleiman, who is the founder of Gift of the Givers. If you don't know who Gift of the Givers are, it was, or what Gift of the Givers does or who Gift of the Givers is, I forgive my grammar, um, you will soon find out because Gift of the Givers is the biggest non-governmental organization on the African continent. It's been around for the last 21 years and it has been to some of the world's most horrendous disaster scenes. It has helped out many, many millions of people over the last two decades. And it's a great privilege to welcome a man who shares my birthday, 7th of March. You're a little older than me, but we, we, we share a birthday I discovered today. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm delighted. I'll, ne- I'll never forget. I'll be, you, you'll be in my thoughts at that particular point. Now, take me, please, back to how it all started. Because here you are, a promising young man, a man with great prospects, a man whose parents spent a fortune on a medical degree. Um, you move from Pochestrup, you go to KwaZulu-Natal, you study uh, at, at university, you spend many, many years becoming a doctor, and then you chuck it all in in 1992. Why? Spiritual reasons. And people keep telling me it's a calling. It's not something I'd planned for. I didn't get up one morning and say, okay, I'm giving up medicine. I want to do something. This all happened by in inverted commas, by, in, by coincidence. 6th August 1992, I was in Istanbul. It was a Thursday night. I was with a spiritual teacher. The strange thing is, in this spiritual place, there were people from all countries, all religions, all colors. There was a unity of man, you know, of different groupings in a holy place. After a religious ceremony, the man just looked at me, and it was as if something was talking through him. You know, he just looked at me and said, My son, I'm not asking you. I'm instructing you. You will form an organization. The name will be Gift of the Givers. You will serve all people of all races, of all religions, of all colors, of all classes, of all political affiliations and of any geographical location. And you will serve them unconditionally. You will not expect anything in return, not even a thank you. In fact, the line of duty that you're going to do, expect to get a kick up your back. If you don't get a kick up your back, regard it as a bonus. And then he said, serve the people with kindness, with compassion, but mercy and remember, the dignity of man is foremost. No matter what condition there is, you always protect the dignity of man. And when you serve them, serve them with excellence. He then said that this is an instruction for you for the rest of your life. And then finally he said that remember that whatever is done is done through you and not by you. And don't ever forget that. Through you, not by you. Explain that. Meaning it's spiritual. It means that it's something that's it, you are you are it's, it's divine intervention, and you are just a medium to deliver, you know, God's mission or do some kind of divine work. More importantly than that, it means don't get a swollen head, don't be egoistic, don't think I'm doing it because really you're doing nothing. What was your response? Did you immediately at that moment have the epiphany which said, "This I will do," or did you go, "Yeah, sure, okay." Um, look at your watch and go, I'll think about it. And I woke up the next morning and thought, maybe he's got a point. Or was it immediate? It was it, it, In that kind of setting, it was like the hearts were talking. You know, It was a connection right with the heart to say, yes, this is what I want to do. No questions asked, just not knowing what's going to happen. And at that point, I thought maybe he's talking about, you no know, some small thing once in a year, once in a while, by the way, in between my medical practice. It, it was not... At the level which is now. No. I mean, I never expected something like this. But every time I met him, he said, this thing will get bigger. This thing will get bigger. And I never knew what he was talking about up till the last five or six years, you know, maybe from the time of the tsunami. That's when the time I really understood what he said, when this thing will get bigger. You were 30 
at the time, 30 years old? 28. 28 years old at the time. Newly qualified medical doctor. um, Hopes and dreams and aspirations ahead of you, personal hopes and aspirations. You chuck all of that in. At what point do you then give up the medical practice altogether? Because I'm assuming you run these things in parallel as you're starting out. Yes, because I mean, I never expected this thing to be so big. And then in 30th June 1994, one of the reasons that that prompted me to give up my practice is when I started going out, I used to go away for a long time. Two weeks, three weeks, there's a problem. I go, I come, I go, I come. And I found that the patients were not going to any other doctor. And this worried me. I said, what if a child is very sick, you know, and they're waiting for it, something yeah. critical, and the child dies waiting for me. I said, mm. it's not a good thing. And then I, that's one of the reasons. And secondly, I said, you know what? You can't do two professional jobs at the same time. This is, it may be an NGO business, but the level at which you're going, you have to do it very professionally. Two words you've used there, professionally yeah. and NGO business. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the professional aspect. I want to talk about the business aspect of it next because I think that's part of the success of, of, of what Gifted the Givers has managed to achieve. You, you then decide to abandon medicine and you then take this and you do it professionally. Where does the first funding for Gifted the Givers come from? What, how big is it? Was it a check for 10,000 rand? Was it a million rand contribution? Did you start with absolutely nothing? Did you have to draw money out of your own bank account? I started off, when I mean, I didn't have that much money at that stage. It was, my contribution is very minimal, you know, but I started off. But the good thing is, you know, it started off initially with the Muslim community. You know, because remember in our religion, giving charity is, a, is an integral part mm. of the religion. And God says very clearly that I don't need your prayer if you don't serve fellow men. So, I mean, that marketing is already done through the religion itself. Yeah. So all you needed to show was established credibility. I mean, there's so many organizations all over the country and all over the continent and all over the world. So you have to start establishing credibility. And once people started seeing what you're doing, the support started coming. And slowly, as the media traveled with us and people from other groups saw what we were doing, they realized we totally non-denominational, non-denominational, and we helped all people. And slowly, the, the, the support started extending to different communities. What was the first project that you took on? What Bosnia. Was August 1992. I mean, that because, also, I mean, lots of Muslims were caught up, of course, in Bosnia at yes. that time. So but it was yeah. strange. You know, I mean, it was the first project. We, yeah, I just got this instruction in August 1992. And this, this civil war starts. I know nothing about NGO work. There's more so going to a war zone, you know, <laughs> forming people and going through all the difficulties and, and hardships. And not even five months later, we designed the world's first containerized mobile hospital. So really, he was right. The things are done through you and not by you. You wouldn't, wouldn't even dream of such a thing. But the ideas are put in your head. Everything is facilitated and things just fall into place very quickly. But, but, you, but you go and operate on faith. Yes. Uh, rather than if you, if you actually had to sit down and think about it and start drawing up a plan and making a list of pros and cons, you would never have gone to Bosnia. It was madness at the time. This was a country in the most violent and turbulent of civil war where um, you know, soldiers were going into villages, taking men out and shooting them in the forest and burying them in mass graves. This is something that was, you know, just absolutely horrendous. Yes. No, I mean, it's 95% of it is driven by faith, you know, you, it, because you feel that connection all the time. You feel the calling, you feel the need, you see the suffering of man, and you want to do something. And you realize, you know what, what there's a lot of prayer involved too. And you, you've been shown what is the right way, what to do, what not to do. And it's very clearly put in front of you. When you got back from Bosnia and you designed the, the world's first container, was it in, in a shipping container, containerized hospital? Yes. Um, having a medical background, of course, must have been invaluable through this process because so much of the work that you do is going into disaster zones, into places where there's enormous tragedy. And to have a medical mind behind it, I'm sure helps the uh, sort of channel and, and, and plan the projects and the rescue missions effectively. 
without the medical knowledge, it, can, it cannot be done. The, t- the type of missions that we do, you know, the medical missions, maybe, yes, turning, taking blankets and tents and supplies, you can do that. You know, you can do that ordinarily. But our, our missions are very much life-saving. And we've gone one level beyond medicine. We've even gone into search and rescue. Yeah. And we're highly equipped in that, that division also. But yes, the medicine is very, very important in what I do. And the hospital itself, I mean, it's not myself. It was a company in Pretoria, you know, a, a company, an engineering company. We got in the medical companies. We put all the options together. So it was a whole lot of minds that got together. It was an initial idea that everybody brainstormed and developed from a single container into a fully-fledged hospital with 28 containers, theaters, ICU, X-ray sterilization unit, uh, you know, incubators, uh, I'm a dental unit, all those kind of things. Are these highly mobile? Do you move them from place to place? Are they part of the rescue mission, whether it was Haiti or whether more recently into the Philippines? Do these containers go with you? No, no, no. That, that was designed specially for Bosnia. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. Right. They're mobile, but we did not move them. We put them in one place. <laughs> but we've reached a level where we're actually a mobile functioning walking hospital. We've got equipment, you know, we, in fact, right now, we've been sitting with the teams since the last mission in Philippines. We're saying that if we carry 50 crates, in 50 crates, we must be a fully functional hospital in every kind of discipline. And that's what we're striving for, to be ready for January 2014. How many people work with you? On, as, as a general gift of the givers, the normal day-to-day people, yeah. there's 60. But the medical teams, that fluctuates. You know, we have a standard core group of about 30 people. And in each team, these are all volunteers. Aren't? These yeah. are not paid people. There's, there's 30 medical guys. There's about 30 search and rescue guys. And in the search and rescue guys, there's paramedics also. So there's overlap between team one and team sure. two. But each, with each medical group, new medical guys are brought in with every mission. So we train new guys. That's the last mission. We took six new ones. And all of them were a great hit, you know, success story, where you find that you develop great talent when you open it up to new people on every mission. My neighbor went with you to Haiti um, and just came back. Uh, fundamentally changed, came back with eyes bigger than saucers um, and um, you know, as a volunteer, took time off work, went in as a volunteer and I think you know, in as much as was moved by what they saw, was terrified by what they saw. How do you cope with the obvious psychological impact that this must have on people when you go into an area, Haiti, uh, just enormous devastation, enormous devastation now in the Philippines as well. Haiti, Haiti was the thing that really affected most of my teams. You know, before they leave, I briefed them. There's always a briefing before you go. And when, I, when they left, the strange thing is they were medical guys. And I told them, don't be squeamish. And they must be thinking this guy is off his head. We doctors, you know, how can you tell us that? Mm. But the reality is when they saw the mass volume of people injured, the broken buildings. You see, in, in South Africa, when you're working in your medical surroundings, you're working in a controlled environment. Somebody may get shot, but one person comes in. One cousin, you've got a nice theater. The nurse laid everything out. You see only the wound. The rest of the patient is sleeping. It's fine. You don't see the area around you outside. But when you go to Haiti, you get the stench of death the moment you walk through the city. The dog that's searching for people in that he's he's complaining that he's found too many bodies only. He can't find any live people. But the thing that really broke them, this is the thing that broke them. When they cleaned the church and when the patients came, the children came. The problem was they had to re-amputate the feet and the hands of the children because somebody before us yeah. messed it up. It wasn't one, it was hundreds. And after that, when they told the children go home, the child said, go home where? Yeah. There's no house. And then they said, what about the, uh, the father or the grandfather? It said, Who? there's nobody. And then they got torn clothes and they got no food and they got no water. The stench of death, broken buildings, broken souls. They, my teams broke down. The founder of Gift of the Givers, Imtiaz Suleiman, is tonight's shapeshifter. You mentioned earlier that this is a business. I mean, we see it as an NGO. We see it as a charitable work. But if you don't run it like a business, you wouldn't have lasted two decades. No. You know, in every aspect, you know, 
a simple thing as the window pane must be repaired, the toilet flush must be working, the car must look good, the branding must be perfect. In every way, your PR on the phone. I mean, their staff make mistakes, yes. Yeah. But, any, if you, and, but every, anybody calls me, there's a problem, we take it up same time. Anybody has a complaint, we look at it straight away. In everything, you, it's in corporates, they want to see what kind of people I'm dealing with. Do they look like some flimsy kind of people, some stupid looking people? Because they want to see professionalism. So in every way, how you manage the money, how you save on prices, what discounts you get. Do, we, do I get one for one? You know, can you push a guy, okay, I buy two, give me one. Can the money one rent become four rent? All that kind of stuff. Where's the best cost saving? Where's the best product? Put company against company. We have to do all those kind of things because at the end of the day, we want to help more people with the same amount of money. Where, does the, where, where do the donations come from? Where does the money come from that enables you to, to travel and to do the work? Predominantly from the South African public. And I'm talking about ordinary people. Let me give you an example. In 2011, when we had the crisis in Somalia, I use that example all the time. Orange farm. Kids go to school bare feet. They don't have money for lunch. They don't even carry lunch. They don't have a jersey for winter. A school in Orange Farm gave us 41,000 rand. No. That's South Africa. Rylands, you, you, you got lessons in Cape Town. Yeah. Rylands Secondary in, in Cape Town. It's not a private school. It's a government school. They gave us over 100,000 rand from a government school in Rylands in Cape Town. Pensioners will say, you know what? Here's money from us. Recently, a guy came out of prison. He said, I haven't been a good man. I've done bad things. I've come out of prison I've heard on the news, you guys are involved in different kind of work. I only have five rand in my pocket. I don't even have a job. He took out five rand sixty. He has the coins and the five rand and said, this is all I have. I don't have any more money after this. But people in your mission need it more than I need it. And it's people like this all over South Africa that respond in this manner. Dr. Mahmoud Badat, you want to talk to MTS Suleiman this evening. Hello, Mahmoud. Hi, how are you doing, uh Hello, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you perfectly. I'm waiting for your call. Mm. Yeah, uh, no, I must, I must comment Dr. Imtia Suleiman. He's doing some magnificent work. It's amazing. Uh, he just mentioned about the prisoner that came out and gave 560 and had nothing. In fact, that 560 is quite equivalent to about 5 million rand, quite honestly. Uh, Dr. Imtia Suleiman, we've just lost an icon in, uh, in South Africa. Madiba passed away. You're an icon in the medical field. Keep up the good work. Mahmoud Badat, thanks so much for your call this evening. I mean, Nelson, you're doing what Nelson Mandela encouraged during his life that we should all do. Um, and you, you met him, I think, only once. Yes, I met him only once. It was a very special occasion. It was, I've been to other functions where he was there, yeah. but I mean, you don't want to intrude. Uh, I met him once. It was very significant. It was the 25th of April, 1997. It was in Peter Marisburg, where my head office is. He was given the freedom of the city. But on the same day, he gave me an award from the Peter Merzberg Civic uh, City Council. It was a Merzberg Civic Commendation. He gave me the award, but I couldn't concentrate. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know what? It was, it was this man. You know, he was so humble. And his stature sort of, it was imposing. The, the strange thing was that this man took his time to talk to very ordinary people. Oh, yeah. You know, he never said, I need to talk to ex- big guys or big presidents or people from big companies. He took his time with very ordinary people and gave them full concentration and attention. And that's the thing that just blew me that evening. When you look at it and you look at the next 20 years, what's going to keep you going? The thing that's been keeping me going for the last 20 years, the suffering of people. Every time I look at people suffering, I say, you know what? God has given me a skill. And he's going to ask me one day, what did you do with the skill I gave you? And secondly, I keep saying to myself, 
I'm in a fortunate position. I'm not on the other side. I'm not getting shot. People, you know, families are not getting raped. People are not starved. They're not hurt by natural disaster. They haven't, we haven't lost everything. We are fine. We have problems and difficulties, but it's nothing in comparison to what you see. You spoke about your anesthetist friend. Every single guy, whether it's media, whether it's an ordinary guy from my team that takes blankets and tents, or whether it's a medical guy, or whether it's a search and rescue guy, they all, the first statement they make is, whenever we go, anywhere in the world, South Africa is a great country. The second statement they make is, we must never be ungrateful. And the third statement, they say that this is a life-changing experience. Inevitably, they all say that. And the fourth thing is, they said, when you're taking us back. Because we want to carry out service. We want to do this over and over again. Because you see the pain and suffering of people. And when you can offer something and to put a smile to somebody's face, you feel great. What a fabulous story. From Imtia Suleiman this evening tonight, Shapeshifter, the founder of Gift of the Givers. <laughs>